This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. In this suspenseful story, a writer of thrillers encounters one of his clever characters. When she demands his involvement in a high-stakes scheme, he starts to wonder if she really has emerged from his fiction. As the situation becomes increasingly dire, he struggles to outwit her double-crossing skills. Author Robert Shuster hasn't yet encountered one of his characters in the flesh, but they're roaming around in various places, including his novel To Zenzi, and in stories that have appeared in a variety of literary journals and anthologies. He lives in Westchester County, New York. This is a work of fiction. Caro's Return Written by Robert Schuster Read by Mark Johannes She showed up on a Sunday afternoon, startling me awake from my daily nap with three brash knocks. Groggy, I was not inclined to answer, as my first reaction was annoyance. A religious nut, a salesman, a kid collecting money for the environment, or, worst of all, one of my eager fans who, after some sleuthing, tracks me down for an autograph or a bit of wisdom. Let me state for the record that I am a 63-year-old writer of moderately successful international thrillers, all penned under my pseudonym of Mason Voxel, and live in Westchester County, New York, an hour north of Manhattan. But I went to the door, after all, afraid that it might be the neighbor, warning me that he'd be starting some major construction project that would disrupt my quiet days. No, I believe it was a stronger fear than that. A sense that this visitor was far more vital. That may not be the best word. I'm in an anxious state as I compose this, which I've undertaken at my lawyer's behest. She stood there, a dark-haired woman of average height with a beak of a nose and a squinty stare. She seemed familiar, but I couldn't come up with a name. Are you Mr. Mason Voxel? she asked. My scowl deepened. A fan, though not a particularly friendly one. I am. And you? Caro, she told me, extending a hand for a light, unengaging shake. I'm hoping you remember. Some years ago you gave me a fortune, but I'm afraid I squandered it, and now I've come to you for help. This was a rather astonishing introduction, presented with such a matter-of-fact tone that I scrambled, silently, to find an explanation. The never-revealed child of a long-ago lover? No, of course not. That was the stuff of cheap fiction. 
cheaper than mine. I decided it was some sort of prank, though she was far too mature for collegiate silliness, and said, I'm sorry, I don't have the time for jokes, and started to close the door. Caro, she said, from your 1998 debut novel, A Letter from Varna, Caro de Luca, a minor character, a housekeeper, but she's the one who ends up with the gold. Well, I replied, a little amused now. This is new to me, a role-playing fan. I'm pleased you know of my earliest work. I have an extra copy that I'd be happy to autograph for you. I ushered her inside. She looked around with that tight-lipped, satisfied look of someone who'd skirted the rules and achieved success in doing so. I told her I'd be a minute and went to fetch the book. I hadn't looked at the story in years, not since a movie deal with a big-name director had fallen through. But the cover still pleased me, a dramatic montage of the sort they never do anymore. The woman had moved into the living room and seated herself on the same couch I used for my nap, which was a bit too bold for my taste. I displayed the book and produced a pen and asked what she'd like me to write. To my dearest Caro, she said without any hint of humor, all my best. Caro? Still keeping up the act. My skeptical frown didn't alter her pinched expression. As you wish. On page 26, she said, if you don't mind, in the margin of the second paragraph, an assertive young woman, and a rather knowledgeable fan of my work, I thought. Uncomfortably knowledgeable. The passage she'd chosen turned out to be the point at which, with only two sentences, I had introduced the character of Carol. A beak-nosed woman with a squinty stare, quietly dusting bookshelves. The resemblance was uncanny. Rattled, I did as she asked, with quick strokes, and gave her the book with a hand that trembled. Thank you for your appreciation, I said, and moved toward the front door to show her out. You're not going to help me? Don't press your luck, young lady, whatever your real name is. I am Caro, from this very novel, and no one else. I see. Well, Caro, I sneered, playing along, then how did you come to squander your fortune? I am capricious in all things, if I may quote you, page 55, and always dreamed of a bigger life. Same page. You may remember that my father, a wealthy Italian politician, disowned me after he discovered I'd had an affair when I was 19 with his married colleague. And my mother, a manic-depressive American, fled soon after because she hated Italy. So I was left with almost nothing but always craved the wealth I remembered. And when I finally acquired that fortune, I squandered it, gambling in Monte Carlo. That's not how the novel ends. The last scene, if I remember... Here, hand me back the book. The last scene, yes, has you emerging from a Swiss bank as the sole owner of 20 million francs, after having outmaneuvered Bulgarian agents and a clever but weary American insurance agent. Anyone who finishes the novel expects me to spend the money wildly, and that's exactly what I did. 
Characters have lives outside the author's paragraphs, as you're well aware. Unless, of course, they're killed off. Why did you come here? I told you, I'm pretty much broke. You have a lot of nerve putting on this ridiculous act. I will now ask you to leave. Don't you think you bear some responsibility for my welfare? As my creator? Go ask your wealthy father, I said with as much sarcasm as I could muster. He died in his garden from a heart attack. Don't you remember? Get out, or I'll have the police remove you. It's like a scene from one of your novels, isn't it? She smiled. All someone needs to do is pull a small black pistol from a pocket. Don't tell me. You're a crack shot, just like Caro, who learned how to handle firearms from that same father who liked to hunt, if I remember her backstory correctly. Since you are still in disbelief, I'll tell you something else instead. In an early draft, I existed as nothing more than an object of desire for the American, who originally was going to make off with all that money himself, until you realized that a triumphant housekeeper would give the story a sly, ironic twist at the end, which became your trademark. How could you possibly know that? I must have said something in an interview once. Or maybe you hacked my computer and saw all my old files. You give me too much credit. In the novel, I did crack the code to the safe, but mostly due to a convenient coincidence. Computers are beyond me. Let me show you my passport. Passport? I gave her a mocking twist of my lips. I thought that as a character from a novel, you'd be able to appear wherever you want with a snap of your fingers. You didn't write, bewitched. The passport seemed genuine. She looked a little younger in the photo, with shorter hair and an expression of disdainful amusement. Quite possibly, I thought. I was dealing with a complex case of acute delusion. Either that, or an elaborate swindle. Both carried elements of danger. If I dismissed her, I might tip her toward some desperate act. I decided to see if I could disrupt her logic, or her game, and discover her true motivations. But I will freely admit that the woman's knowledge of that old novel intrigued me. There's nothing like an enthusiastic fan of your work to instill a bit of joy. My sales had been flagging these past few years. My agent no longer seemed interested in my progress. My publisher had hinted once or twice that my ideas were somewhat outdated, and I'd fallen into a dispirited state, an acceptance of fading renown. Let me offer you a drink, I said, softening my tone. I have an exceptional burgundy. Or maybe you'd prefer something stronger. You don't seem to remember that my father was an alcoholic. Ah, yes. Tea would be fine. With a little sugar. No milk. I vaguely recalled I had given Caro that preference, too. The woman was starting to unnerve me. I fussed in the kitchen longer than necessary to settle my head pouring myself a tumbler of scotch. I returned with her tea in a delicate, unused cup that I'd acquired from an elegant restaurant in Bulgaria's Sofia when I was there for research all those years ago. 
At one point in my first novel, the character of Caro dines at the same restaurant with Derek, the American insurance agent. I thought I might somehow use the detail to unmask this woman. Tell me, I said, how you lost all that money. Naturally, she recognized this as a test, but she relaxed, sipped her Earl Grey, and smiled. Here is where I noticed, just as Derek had, that she was rather attractive in a severe sort of way, especially if you didn't catch her in profile. Back in the days of the film rights negotiations, I had imagined Carol being played by some stark, angular Italian beauty. She went on to describe, without any hesitation or hint of a memorized script, her time in Monte Carlo, the helicopter ride from Nice, the immense yachts in Port Hercule, the main casino's ornate and chandeliered interior, the tuxedoed croupiers who spoke four languages and the array of roulette tables, each with a single zero wheel, which put the house's take at only 2.7%. She reminded me that her father had been a gambler and had taught her everything. I remembered having placed a few such hastily researched details into that old novel, though I hadn't understood any of it. That, of course, is a writer's little secret. You only have to sound as if you do but her confident manner convinced me that she'd been there and had lost some large sum through caprice. As I sat there, taking all this in, her foreign credentials, her inhabited role, her apparent admiration for my work, and her severe features, she started to enchant me. The feeling was advanced, yes, by a second afternoon scotch. I became garrulous, and my trouble soon tumbled out. A divorce three years prior that had left me in emotional tatters. The declining readership, financial worries, and worst of all, a sense that I'd lost the energy for concocting an intricate plot. I didn't tell her that my drinking, heavier since my marriage crumbled, might have something to do with this last point, not to mention a thickening of my face and gut. Once reasonably attractive, even with hair that had receded early, I had in recent years assumed a stolid, jowly, big-headed look. But she was sympathetic and encouraging. I'd given her such a wonderful scheme to follow, after all. Making fools of those Bulgarian agents and duping the rather handsome American, the poor fellow. The cup, she said, taking another delicate sip of her tea, it's from that restaurant in Sofia, isn't it? Shivermetto, where he and I had dinner together? My calm nod hid my astonishment and my shivering nerves. Not only was she charming me, she was getting me to believe that she really was that character from my novel. Let's suppose for a moment that you're telling the truth, I said with a half-frightened, half-playful tone. What about other books? Do their protagonists exist as you do? Does Rushkolnikov still stalk around somewhere? Crime and Punishment was written in 1866, which would make Raskolnikov, who began that story at the age of 24, let me add it up, over 170 years old. The answer is decidedly no. I see, 
something more recent than one of Michael Connolly's tales. Come on now. It's like that silly question people ask when they discover a stranger is from their own hometown. Do you know so-and-so? The odds are astronomical. I have no idea whether characters from other books have lives in this world or not. I only know the ones you had me meet. All right. What about this? If I'm your creator, wouldn't I have the power to control you? To change you? What if I wrote a sentence giving you long blonde hair instead of your dark shoulder-length cut? Will it change before my eyes? Does God hold such power? Does God operate on such whims? You keep mistaking my appearance for some sort of wizardry. I am flesh and blood just as you are, and no less real. Let me at least prove that. She stood before me, lifted one of my hands as a courtesan might, and then kissed it twice. Her flesh and blood warmth was rather marvelous. In any case, she continued, you know as well as I do that a sentence or two does not create a character. It takes a book, an entire book, painstakingly developed and paced. There was more banter about authors and their creations, followed by a third scotch, more tea, dinner which she insisted on cooking, my chaste kiss on her left cheek, and then, was it inevitable? Her overnight stay. Let me spare you the intimate details. As the critics have pointed out, they're not my fort anyway. But I will confess that I felt a mix of thrill shame, and horror at the first sight of her compact nudity, for I could not easily dismiss the notion that our coupling was somehow incestuous. Yet I was smitten and invited her to spend a second night. After she left the next morning to fetch her things at a nearby hotel, my heated head cooled and I began to worry that I'd been set up. She'd return with several thugs who'd rob me, beat me, and leave me for dead. I called my friend Howard Bixby, a cranky old poet who would set me straight, but as fate would have it, he didn't answer. He was a drinker himself and had probably slept late. In any case, she came back a short while later with no thugs and only a small suitcase, which bore evidence of overseas travel. There was truth in her story. It appeared, but how much, I couldn't tell. A week later, she was still living with me. Neither of us had any reason to end the arrangement, if that's what it was. She had dropped her request for money, and I had ceased my interrogation of her motives. She did not admit to being anyone other than Caro de Luca, so I decided that she was an ardent fan living out of fantasy. A narcissistic view, perhaps, yet I found no harm in her act. In fact, I enjoyed the company. She was remarkably bookish, well-versed not just with my work, but with literature in general. She had strong opinions, particularly about classic characters. She detested Alexei Vronsky and Anna Karenina, for example, both of them as weak as children, 
blushing on every page. Don Quixote and his pal Sancho are funny for five minutes, but their endless and predictable pratfalls are worse than the idiocy of the Three Stooges. Huckleberry Finn seems heroic at first, but soon wastes his time in throwaway farce. With more disdain, she dissected Herzog, Rabbit Angstrom, and Elizabeth Bennet, always making suggestions on how the characters' plot lines could be improved. She engaged me to such a degree that I found my confidence returning, and I began bouncing a few ideas off her for new books. Her presence in the house felt like that of a muse. I was delighted, of course, with my sudden psychological turnabout, and went so far as to alter my diet, soften the drinking, and lose some weight. And when I received, some time later, an invitation to a literary party to mark a young lion's debut, I did not toss it away in a fit of envy. The soiree at a chic restaurant would celebrate the publication of yet another buzzed-up dystopian novel by yet another stubbled twenty-something in black-framed glasses who got his start in The New Yorker and had earned a six-figure advance. It usually was the last place I'd want to go, but the notion of attending now had some appeal, especially since the idea involved taking Caro along. I hoped she might raise my status a little, as I was planning to quarter my editor for some needed encouragement. We arrived late to ensure the crowd would be lubricated. I decided to spiff myself up with a silk tie and cufflinks, and Caro had produced a stunning black dress paired with a sapphire necklace, a combo right out of the novel. She was meticulous in her devotion. We made, I must say, a smart-looking couple, and we received attention straight away from someone I knew to be a publicist, an elegant woman around my age and aware of my reputation, faded as it was, bless her, who ushered us over to the author for our congratulations. The author grinned and nodded at my name, pretending to know it, and then, at the mention of my thriller-only output, shrank away to greet another handshaker. This left me peeved, so I settled at the open bar with Caro and downed two scotches in quick succession, to hell with cutting back. Caro grew restless, wearying of my spite, and went off to circulate while I watched the fawning shoulder-pats and the forced laughter with mounting disdain, trying not to worry about what Carol might say, trying to gather some courage to speak with my editor. As it happened, an hour later or so, he came to me, a silver-haired gent with a rough, acne-scarred face and a throaty accent that hinted at Boston. He struck you as a streetwise intellectual, and he enlarged the image when he'd had a few. She's a doll, he said with a near whisper, taking the seat next to me. Charming as hell. Where'd you find her? His obvious delight set me at ease, and I shrugged. She found me. Goddamn brazen stunt, and I love it. She nails the part. I can see this kind of thing catching on. Margaret Atwood interviewing one of her robed handmaids, or Stephen King arguing with that psychotic fan from Misery? Anyway, tell me about your sequel. 
I was on my fourth drink and holding up pretty well, but I thought I'd misheard. Didn't catch that? He assumed, it appeared, that I was being wry and squinted with one of those man-to-man looks. I always loved a letter from Varna. Such a terrific plot with all those old-fashioned twists. And yet you were ahead of your time with that one. Having that housekeeper, Carol, be the smartest one in the room at the end, making off with all that dough. And if she does it again, in grander style... It's going to resonate with this whole empowered women's movement. Caro? <laughs> that Caro? He jerked his thumb back to the crowd and laughed. Tells me you're well into it. She really is a charmer. Her takedowns of Vronsky and Anna had me splitting a gut. In grander style? Only to mean that you're following the usual protocol for a sequel. Having it outdo the first story in terms of scale? She mentioned that this time, Caro, the character I mean, will get away with billions in Bitcoin. Great idea. I'm glad to see that my hints to modernize your plots haven't fallen on deaf ears. Look, I've got to make a few more rounds here, all these needy bastards desperate for compliments. Present company excluded, of course. Fantastic promo with this Caro, or whatever her real name is. Sure as hell got my attention. Keep me updated. Lunch one day soon. Too boozed up to drive, I handed teetotaler Caro the keys to my Volvo. And as soon as we were inside its sealed-off bubble, I launched my complaints. What was all this talk of a sequel? Why had she told my editor that I'd already started it? And Bitcoin? I didn't know a damn thing about that stuff. But now she'd boxed me into a corner. You could have told him it was all nonsense, she said. I could have. But he was so goddamn enthusiastic. Slow down, will you? You're way over the limit. I'm used to driving in Europe, but I love to go fast when I'm happy. Why aren't you happy? Because I don't appreciate being directed what to write. It was only a suggestion. Your editor seemed to like me, and I thought I'd try to help you out. And don't worry about the complications of cryptocurrency. I know someone who understands all of it. At home, in bed, still swimming in booze, full of carnal heat, I forgave her. We wrapped ourselves around each other, and I whispered, One of these days, Carol, you'll tell me your real name. She laughed softly, but with a certain conspiratorial pitch, it seemed at the time to be humorous. Soon after, given the editor's strong interest, I convinced my agent to negotiate a nice advance, and she came away to my continuing delight with a sum beyond my expectations. Caro and I had dinner at one of those ridiculously expensive Japanese restaurants where the chefs are like monks and they don't let you have any soy sauce. As for writing the novel, it began well enough. With a working title of Caro's Return, the story, I decided, would start in Monte Carlo, with Caro gambling away the last of her fortune. This struck me as rather perfect under the odd circumstances, a fictional scene based on the real-life experience 
of a woman claiming to be a character out of fiction written by the same author. A nice little circle. An amusing little paradox. I probably should have taken it as a warning that I was feeling all too lightheaded about the whole project. But Caro kept me enthralled with her charm, angular beauty, expertise in all those languages and their sex talk, and her literary chops. We spent a fair amount of time discussing various aspects of the plot. It would advance thus. In Monte Carlo, after her losses, Caro's character glimpses Derek, the American insurance agent. Thinking she's going to be turned over to the police, she flees back to Nice, only to find that he's managed to follow her there. He confronts her, but not for the reason she suspects. Derek, having admired her intelligence, among other traits, wants to work with her this time on a scheme involving Swiss cryptocurrency, Swiss banks, and vast amounts of insurance that, if it all goes according to plan, will net them several billion euros, siphoned off through an elaborate, perfectly timed hack. As Caro stated earlier, I have made my reputation, such as it is, on ironic final twists. Caro, the housekeeper who outwits everyone, was my first. I needed one, of course, for the sequel. It came to me in a flash. Just after the pair have successfully broken into the secret underground complex that's home to the cryptocurrency operation, a destructive earthquake knocks the main computers offline, preventing the transfer of any data and forcing Caro and Derek to escape the wreckage with only their lives. Caro looked at me as if I had metamorphosed into a Martian. You can't be serious. That's a little contrived, I know. After all I've done to restore your career? And you deny me the fortune because you want to protect your reputation for ironic twists? Deny you the fortune? Caro, my dear, they're not going to cancel the advance over the fine points of plotting. Let's see what the editor thinks. Maybe not an earthquake. Maybe a fire caused by an overheated computer. In any case, you and I will have plenty of high-end dining and exotic travel together. She thinned her eyes to make an expression of malevolence I remembered giving her in the first book, just before she revealed her thieving plans. I don't mean your drop-in-the-bucket advance. I mean the fortune in cryptocurrency, you fool. Her use of fool is not my invention. She actually said it, having been immersed, I now see, in all the creaky tropes of dramatic dialogue. I scowled back at her. Now I must ask if you are serious. Very serious. I thought by now you would have dropped this pretense. I thought by now you would have believed that I am Caro de Luca from your first novel. The delusion had gone far enough. To allow it to continue this long, I had been a fool. Great disappointment engulfed me, and I made an excuse to go for a walk. That's where I often came up with my best plots, I said. I drove to a nearby park and took out my phone to call Howard Bixby. This time he answered. 
I explained the situation, painting Caro as a bit crazier than she seemed, pushing Howard toward convincing me to end the affair. Instead, he was incredulous. You're going to abandon an ideal situation over the ending of a silly thriller? Give her the plot she wants and let her continue in the delusion if it keeps her there. When are you going to get another opportunity like this? You're uglier than I am. I could always count on Howard for honesty. I took a walk, after all, and considered his advice. Caro had, indeed, been good to me, and I still had not detected, call me naive, any real danger in her behavior. And why not break the mold with this novel? Let the readers think there would be one last twist where there'd be no irony at all. A twist itself. Carol would flee with the money again, an icon of the new empowerment. My editor would probably love it. I came home quite satisfied with the solution, only to discover that Carol herself had come up with a twist. Carol was standing in the kitchen next to a tall, muscular fellow who was holding, the astute reader might have guessed, a small black pistol. He was introduced as Derek Mellon, former insurance agent and now a cryptocurrency expert. With his square head and sharp cheekbones, he closely resembled my descriptions of him, now with less hair and a touch of gray on his whiskered chin. I risked a bit of disgust. And your real lover. Real or fictional, said Carol coolly, depending on your level of disbelief. Either way, you couldn't have actually thought I was attracted to you. Call me delusional. Cold sweat broke out on my brow and I had to sit down. The truth is, despite the prevalence of guns in my work, they terrify me. But of course I was also plunged into a deep depression. Their plan for me was simple. I would write the novel to their satisfaction in as short a time as possible. Their satisfaction being those billions of euros with no ironic twist to deny it. I didn't dare tell them that I'd already decided to have it end that way. Fearing their madness. Because surely they were both insane. They monitored me around the clock, always with that gun, making sure the story would not veer from their plan. Caro held the pistol most of the time, looking bored, while Derek explained the ins and outs of Bitcoin, how it was mined, transferred, and occasionally stolen, and how it was insured. I echoed some of these details for his character's expository dialogue, when he first reunites with Caro in the new novel, and then let Derek guide me through the intricacies of the break-in, the theft, and the escape. Satisfied with my progress, despite my complaints of duress, they forced me to add gratuitous scenes of gluttony at Europe's finest restaurants, from Chevermetto to La Tour d'Argent in Paris, not to mention sex on shipwreck beach on Zakynthos Island, all this enveloped me in a darker and more anxious state, as I envisioned them demanding further adventures and other books. My alternating surges of belief and disbelief in their motives 
were like spikes on a Richter-scale graph. In another month, exhausted and bitter, I emailed the completed manuscript to my editor, who was astonished in his reply about my fast pace. A week later, he asked me to meet him at his office. Carol thought she should attend. The editor had been quite taken with her, after all. But I said that would be rather irregular and would arouse suspicion. Therefore, I took the hour-long trip by train into Manhattan alone, feeling gloriously free and determined to escape my extortioners. At the publishing house, in a private conference room that I'd requested, the ruddy-faced editor noted my nervousness and assured me that he had enjoyed the novel but had a few comments. First, he thought the scenes of dining and, ahem, sex, might be trimmed or perhaps cut. I agreed. He then asked why I hadn't included my trademark twist at the end. I'll give it to you now, I said. Ah, I'm glad you're still up to your old tricks. But it must be in complete confidence. It's a short scene and I'm going to handwrite it on a sheet of paper, right here. You will not make the change until after I have returned the marked-up galley to you. Your suggested cuts as well. Don't make them until then. In other words, there cannot be any electronic version of these changes, and only the two of us can know about them until the book is published. And if you could expedite everything, put a rush on the cover and so forth... Well, this is very odd. I'm in a fix. That woman you met at the party, Caro, she's turned out to be rather deranged, and this role-playing is far more than a publicity stunt. I can explain it all later, but I need your promise on this. All right. I'll do my best. It sounds rather intriguing, almost like something from one of your novels. It goes beyond my genre, I'm afraid. How bad? I'm not sure yet, but I hope this will solve everything. The editor did as I'd asked, and the galley appeared in record time. Everything was there as I'd wished, with none of my changes yet added. I made a few minor tweaks to some dialogue, mainly for Caro and Derek, who were no longer living with me, but who made regular visits and threats with their gun. They approved the galley, and then went with me to the post office to mail everything back. I assured them that no alterations to the book could be made now. Carol gave me one final grin and a kiss to the cheek, along with a thin-eyed vow to enact vengeance if I tried anything tricky in terms of the plot. The two of them raced off in Derek's Porsche Speedster. For the next few months, I huddled like a bedridden patient awaiting a cure. The novel finally appeared, and it contained all of my last-minute post-galley changes. There was no return of Caro and Derek, and the reviews were splendid, many of them running along the lines of the one from the L.A. Times, a thriller full of marvelously taut suspense that delves into the bizarre world of virtual currency and delivers Voxel's trademark irony. But even with this, even with strong recommendations from Kirkus and Library Journal, 
I felt only a small measure of relief. The real test, I assumed, would come a year later, the duration in fictional time of the novel. After the appropriate number of months had passed, I scanned all the major papers and websites for news of cryptocurrency theft, but found nothing. The heist, if it had happened, was likely being covered up, just as it was in Caro's return. But then there came the postcard picturing the famed La Tour d'Argent. On the back, resorting to genre cliché, Caro had written, You'll never get away with this which meant, if our worlds were still entwined, they had read the sequel and knew of their preordained fate in my last ironic twist, and knew they could do nothing to prevent it. After all their celebrations in Europe, Caro and Derek come to New York, where Caro meets her estranged mother in a touching scene, if I may say so, and gives her some of the new fortune. After a lavish dinner... Caro and Derek head back to their five-star hotel in a luxury rental car. But she's so full of renewed maternal love that Carol first takes them on a joyride along the Hudson River, driving fast, as she does when happy, and loses control on a wet road when she swerves to avoid hitting a raccoon. But she had bested me. She had acted outside my paragraphs while not interfering with the plot. I had given her the reunion with her mother as compensation for her demise, but that is where I'd miscalculated. I'd let her linger there too long. She had informed her mother about the heist, naming me as the mastermind. She had told her mother to notify the police if she soon turned up dead, and to name me as the murderer. Her statement was signed and sealed inside the mother's house. I learned this from the police who soon appeared at my door and arrested me on suspicion of being an accomplice in cyber theft and on suspicion of double homicide. So there you have it. I have made this confession from my miserable jail cell, at my lawyer's behest, in the hope that I might be freed from this nightmare. But I'm no longer even sure if what I've written here is real or imagined or if the whole thing is someone else's skewed little thriller. The police claim that the brakes on that rental car had been sabotaged. God help me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. 